John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Entry 1354.IS2915, certificate number 27765. Tylenol murders. I want him brought from his happy holiday slumber over there in Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And I want him brought right here. And I want to look him straight in the eye, and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no good, rotten, four flushing, low life, snake licking, dirt eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood. Sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, hopeless, heartless, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of monkey sh he is! Hallelujah! Where's the Tylenol? You've surely experienced, as I and everyone else in the world has, uh, the frustration of trying to get into a package of medicine. As recently as last week, I could not open a little thing. I thought it was one of the push down and turn kind, and it turned out it was maybe a line up the arrows kind mm. or some third kind I wasn't previously familiar with. I didn't even realize a line up the arrows kind still existed. That was a that was a while back, and I thought that feels like child proofing. It probably was old. That was probably taking expired medicine. Yeah, <laughs> right. Medicine from the 80s. What's the, uh, what's the worst that could happen? And there are child protective medicine caps that require that you have a certain amount of finger strength to open the bottle. And you have to be able to either press down and turn like cough syrup or... You've got to go nine to the left, then a full turn to the right, <laughs> and then 18. But I often find myself, even as a, uh, a strong adult with strong hands, guitar player hands... I like how you're forestalling any rumors. I have very strong hands. So, big, I don't big, care what you've heard. Big, strong hands, although I do have uh, fingers that taper at the tip rather than being big sausage fingers. Is that bad? Wait, let's see them. Uh, well, no, it's it's quite elegant. In fact, you you might say regal. It's a, music, a musician's hands. Well, no, I, I feel like if you look at Jimi Hendrix's hands, first of all, they're bigger than his head, and his fingers are, are meaty, and mine are, you know, hands of someone who reads. This is having less and less to do with Tylenol murders, but can you explain to me um, why a big, like, wouldn't you want thin, agile fingers for guitar work? Why is a big, meaty fingertip the, the perfect fingertip size for a guitarist? Well, you can accomplish a lot more on a fretboard because your hands are big and you can make big, complicated chords. You can get around, whereas I have to kind of, you know, mince around. I, like, traipse around a fretboard, whereas Jimi Hendrix, he has, like, a lot more access to strings. Maybe it's the kind of thing where the restriction leads to greater work, you know, hmm. like, like an unusual rhyme scheme in a villanelle, you know, 
Like they say that about Peter Buck, I think that he, uh, you know, wasn't the greatest technical guitarist chord wise. So he would do this elaborate, he had to teach himself to do all this elaborate finger picking kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm not a very good guitar player either. Although, uh, Tony Iommi of, uh, Black Sabbath fame actually cut the tips of his fingers off in an industrial accident when he was young and working in a factory. Not on purpose because he's so metal. He, he, no, it's very metal. He did but, an accident with real metal. So uh, all of Black Sabbath's music was composed using fake fingertips of his own design. What? He put finger, he put... What new, are they made out of? Legos? Well, uh, no, at first I think they were metal and then covered with some kind of wax. I mean, he's perfected it over time. But so Black Sabbath's music is very simple and, you know, and basically they invented heavy metal because Tony Iommi didn't have fingertips and he's like playing with like metal fingers. Don't get me started on the amazing <laughs> drum work of Def Leppard. No, let's not. <laughs> uh, but medicine in particular and products in general did not always come with elaborate uh, safety seals. If you buy any kind of bottled drink now, you'll find that not only is the top of the bottle wrapped in plastic, but then once you open it, there's a pop top that sort of lets you know that it's been opened. And even in the case of medicine, in addition to the childproofing stuff, there will be a second layer of some kind of foil or plastic seal or, or both. Right. That's what I was about to say about my pointy fingers. I often find it next to impossible to get into medicine. Uh, I have to get a pair of scissors out because I cannot somehow manage to get the pill through the super double, triple foil plastic covering. Uh, but this wasn't always the case. Medicine used to come just on the shelf in a pill bottle and you could open the bottle and there wasn't any uh, foil seal. You'd go to the drugstore and there was just an open Tupperware full of pills. Yep. You would take out the ones that you'd like the look of, the color or just the shape. scoop big handfuls yeah, you, of them. It would be like the bulk granola thing. You'd yeah. take one of those bulk granola scoops and go. Unfortunately, that's not true. But there was not a, a feeling that you needed to protect your product from the grubby hands of other people, because for the most part, that idea, like so many thought technologies, uh, that thought had just never occurred to anybody to mess with a product on the shelves in that way. It was a huge success story. Millions of pills had been sold, billions of products sold, and nothing had ever gone wrong. Right. Until a fateful day, which I, I think you are old enough to remember. I do remember. In 1982, it was a national news story that seven people in the Chicagoland area died from taking tainted Tylenol. They're never going to sponsor the show now, by the way, John. Good job. Well, no. In fact, uh, the story ends up being a story of triumph. Good corporate uh, citizenship, even? Yeah. The um, So maybe they will. Maybe they will advertise here now we, after we talk them up. We can Tylenol, only... not poison anymore, TM. It's actually a case of where the corporate response to the Tylenol poisonings worked to the long-term advantage of Johnson & Johnson, the company that makes Tylenol. It's true. I, I pop a Tylenol all the time without a second thought to the cover of Time magazine in 1982. Right. And I assume uh, those of us, you know, the, the Tylenol worshippers we're speaking to in the future are the same way. <laughs> the Tylenol worshippers, that's right. Uh, with their Tylenol-centric culture. So in, in the fall of 82... A woman by the name of Mary Kellerman died after taking Tylenol, extra strength Tylenol, which is just acetaminophen. And then pretty immediately uh, that same day, uh, people started to arrive in the hospital 
complaining of symptoms of what became cyanide poisoning and then multiple deaths, including uh, some from the same family. That's the saddest case to me. This uh, postal worker named Adam Janus falls mysteriously ill, falls into a coma and then dies. You know, his mourning family can't, the doctors can't figure it out. The family doesn't understand the sudden death. So his brother and sister-in-law come in home mourning from the hospital, having had the worst day of their lives, pop an extra strength Tylenol from the medicine cabinet, hoping it'll make them feel better and die immediately as well. Public health officials are, are missed. They, they assume it's a carbon monoxide link and they can't find the carbon monoxide. Yeah. Can you imagine? Like they surely took those Tylenol to alleviate the symptoms of. That's exactly of what it was. Crying and trauma. And there was uh, a painful irony, you know, uh, but an additional level of irony is that's what helped break the case. I think toxicologists have said that if those two had not popped Tylenol from the same bottle, thus giving authorities a clue, there could have been weeks more of deaths before any kind of solution or recall was announced. Yeah. And they went around then and, and checked the other deaths and everybody had taken Tylenol and there was a, sort of an immediate response uh, and they were able to... S they were able to recognize that because Tylenol is actually manufactured by different manufacturers. It's sold by Johnson and Johnson, but they have factories around. Oh, is that true? You yeah. can like 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 a Coke uh, bottlery or whatever. You can buy a Tylenol franchise. Yeah, and they and that's what I want. A Tylenol franchise. I, I want to run a <laughs> Tylenol franchise out of my basement. You're there with a hammer and pestle, and you're just grinding up acetaminophen. It would just be kind of an artisanal. I would call it lonely Tylenol, which Whoa. is a palindrome. Uh, oh, what really? Yeah, lonely think, Tylenol think, is... Think about it. Whoa, Lonely Tylenol. That should be... You're going to have a song called Lonely Tylenol. Well, that's now. a fantastic band name, but I think you'd get sued by Johnson & Johnson. I think it's actually been... It's already taken. It's one of the palindromes in the Weird Al Yankovic song, Bob. Which is palindromic? For Bob, yes. I see. Oh, sure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the song itself is composed of palindromes. Yeah. Satan sees Natasha, no devil lived on. Lonely Tylenol, not a banana baton. No X and Nixon, a stone be not so. And of course, we don't have to explain Weird Al in the future. His, his parodies are known long after the original songs have vanished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like uh, the guys from Wild Stallions. We should explain to the future that there actually was a song called Like a Virgin before like a surgeon. They're not going to believe it. <laughs> well, and uh, they might be Giants famous song, I palindrome I, which is not a palindrome. It has a word palindrome in the middle, which is where the palindrome is composed of words and not letters like I am a dog, dog, A-M-I. Oh yeah. Which come on. That's, that's not. It's a little shoddy. Really? A they might be giants. Uh, let's not talk about they might be giants. Let's, well, let's save that for a different podcast. We are uh, big fans of they might be giants. Yeah. We do not find them lyrically shoddy in any way. No, not at all. They're, they're, uh, they're geniuses. Let's just go on record and say that because they have very, very litigious lawyers and uh, they would take us out at the knees. They might be lawyers is the name of their law firm. <laughs> it doesn't really put the fear of God into you when they might be lawyers comes after you. Oh, until you've been sued by That's them. That's right. Which I have. Uh, Johnson & Johnson, the company, uh, responded to this threat Immediately, within the week, they issued a recall of Tylenol products nationwide, and over 30 million bottles of Tylenol, uh, which were worth tens of millions of dollars, uh, were recalled from the shelves. Now, when a company does something like that, they're not just being good corporate citizens. They are also afraid 
that one of their most iconic brands is done forever, right? Well, and it was a pretty dramatic, I mean, I remember at the time, Tylenol becoming synonymous with poison. Which is um, not what you want if you're a, <laughs> if you're a pharmaceutical company, right? I, I'm not a business expert. I don't have an MBA, but you don't want your, uh, your medicine to become synonymous with poison. They had a 35% market share which dropped to 8% following the scare. Right. Can you imagine? I mean, and particularly a company, Johnson & Johnson's size, which is, I mean, they are an enormous Johnson. company. Oh, a company, yes. They're a, an enormous company with a lot of different products. They would be able to survive uh, uh, the loss of Tylenol as a brand, but Tylenol was a massive money earner for them. Yeah, you really don't want to have to fall back on your... A Q-tip. SC Johnson waxed floss <laughs> or your Listerine or whatever it is that Johnson & Johnson makes. Uh, but their response so reassured the public that within a couple of years, they had regained that market share. And today, they're the best-selling version of acetaminophen, the best-selling pain reliever, I guess, on the market today. I just I just pop a tunnel even when I'm not sick just to celebrate their good citizenship in 1982. Yeah, I feed it to my family before I feed it to myself just in case. My wife will only take acetaminophen. She's allergic to both aspirin and ibuprofen. Oh, sure. So and I she, think that she's locked into Tylenol. That's fairly common. We think of the Tylenol murders as being the first example of this because in, in the aftermath, product safety became a big, big issue and it was very quickly impossible to buy any kind of uh, medicament that didn't have seven different levels of security on top of it. Did and you just say medicament? I did. What a, what a predicament. <laughs> The Tylenol's medicament predicament. Yeah, it's a, it was a predicament for Tylenol. So it felt very much like prior to this, there had been no product tampering. And now suddenly we were all massively inconvenienced by this. And it is Pandora's pill bottle, you know, like yeah. once the idea is out there in the thought space, hey, a crazy person can just do this. And there were a lot of copycat murders. Oh, really? Because, like, like immediately following the... Yeah, people understood like, oh, this is a great idea. And we'll discuss some in, in a minute, but there were copycat murders in the immediate aftermath that actually killed people. It's certainly an argument for not overly publicizing the thing, but I guess it's a devil's bar Faustian bargain either way. You know, you want to get the word out the Tylenol is bad, but not but, in a way that makes people think... Yeah, what a great idea. We see it in our time with school shootings, which for all the other factors that cause them, certainly a contributing one seems to be that now a lot of kids can read about school shootings. Well, and it's true of suicides too. Is when, that true? There's... Yeah, when there's a, a very public suicide, there's a rash of suicide that follows. That's an interesting thing that the idea that it's keep, the only thing keeping a lot of people alive is um, that they haven't read about someone else not. Well, it feels like it's empowering, right? Like you read about it and you're like, ah, oh, well, you know, if that person can finally get over the hump and do it, I will too. It's the most powerful example of peer pressure. It's like what your parents always said when they wanted to know if you would jump off a roof if your friends did. And there it turns are, out the answer is yes for many people. It happens within schools where some where a kid will commit suicide and then there will be, and that's why you have suicide counselors come into schools now in the aftermath of events like this to counsel other students because sometimes it will become an actual epidemic. And it's not like some spell has been cast. These are probably kids with pre-existing depression or anxiety. Right. But now it's just like, well, I won't be the only one. So thank but, goodness. You know, 14 year olds have a lot of depression and anxiety that will just pass with time. But given the empowerment of like someone, my friend killed themselves or the popular girl did. 
How come it doesn't work the other way? How come they're not like, hey, my friend didn't kill himself today. I'm going to do that. I think that is how most people stay alive. In fact, that's why there are more living people uh, than you would expect, given how hard life is. It's working out. Um, In the case of the Chicago Tylenol murders, a culprit was never found. The crime was never solved. A man came out, a man named James Lewis, wrote a letter to Johnson & Johnson extorting them, saying, I will stop the murders if you pay me a couple of million dollars. Did he state or imply that that was because he was the mad poisoner or just because he had amazing crime-solving ability? He did not specify. Mm. Uh, he said, "I'll, you know, the killings will stop or whatever if you pay me this money. He was immediately discovered and claimed he, it was just like a fake extortion attempt. Which it probably was, right? Yeah, and he did a little, uh, some not inconsiderable amount of jail time. And they've continued to investigate him over the years, but have never found any evidence that uh, he, he didn't even live in Chicago at the time. I've done no research on this guy, but it seems like a crime like this that tens of millions of people know about, one person is going to have the idea, hey, yeah. I can get a little cash out of this. Yeah, right. And that's another kind of copycat. Uh, that's why police often withhold specific information about crimes, because that's one way to determine whether the killer's telling the truth or not, if he contacts them. I feel like this dates back to the Jack the Ripper killings where the London papers were just shocked because, you know, they kind of naively put out a call. Hey, if you're Jack the Ripper, let us know. And suddenly they got hundreds of thousands of people. You know, they were literally getting thousands of letters. And they're like, what is wrong with <laughs> London? The only way, you know, the, the letter that's thought to be real, the Dear Boss letter, I believe, or maybe one of the other ones. There's, I think there's two that are thought to be real. Right. And it's because the killer actually had to include a slice of murdered prostitute kidney in the letter. Because otherwise it was just going to get lost in a sea of uh, fanfic. Right. Well, and it, the thing is, uh, there weren't DNA tests then, so it could have been the kidney of anyone. I think it matched. <laughs> uh, we're getting into the research. I th- uh, this is, we are not one of these true crime podcasts. For it the actually future. matched a slice, a taken missing out of- shape oh, that was boy. known to be missing from one of the you know vivisected girls' bodies. Well, it turns out though that uh, the Tylenol murders were not, and I think this is probably self-evident that these were not the first instances of products being poisoned. Oh, it's just the others weren't media splashes. Well, and they were, uh, but it didn't create this kind of uh, national panic. And, uh, well, the first sort of one I've been able to uh, uncover dates all the way back to 19, or I'm sorry, all the way back to 1889. Wow. Um, The director of Was it a liniment? I hope it wasn't a liniment. It was not a liniment, exactly. It was actually bromo-seltzer, the the precursor (laughs) to Alka-Seltzer. It's funnier than the funny one I thought of. (laughs) We should cut that whole part out, then. Uh, That's great. Bromo-seltzer. Bromo-seltzer. The the director of the Knickerbocker Athletic Club in New York City. You're just making up old-timey sounding things. I'm afraid that... Are are there going to be poison suspender clips? In, in this story? Uh, a poisoned tie bar. And, uh... <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished 
beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. No, uh, uh, Harry Cornish, which is a great name if you are the director of the Knickerbocker Athletic Club. It's good. Was sent uh, anonymously a, a very nice bottle of Bromo Seltzer and a decorative Bromo Seltzer bottle. And he thought it was nice enough. Is it like fan art? I enjoy your seltzer. I have made a... Or I enjoy your personage. And here is a a decorative bromo seltzer. I have never done this to a pharmaceutical um, CEO in my life. I admire many of them. Right. It's one famous thing about me is how much I love the titans of the pharmaceutical industry who always have our best interest in mind. Well, and uh, he's, of course, uh, he is a athletic director and not a pharmaceutical CEO. Oh, he, he, I, I'm sorry. He does not make Bromo Seltzer. No, he just got a gift of Bromo Seltzer in the mail. And I think- What in an a, odd gift. In a post-Tylenol world, if you got a gift of Bromo Seltzer in the <laughs> mail, you wouldn't take it. Uh, he didn't immediately take it, but a guest in his home by the name of Catherine Adams was suffering from a headache. And, you know, Harry probably naturally said, you know, luckily I just got a gift of Bromo seltzer in the mail. He's going through his fan mail. You know, which one would be helpful in this situation? Yeah. The one that came with the Bromo seltzer. So she took a little bit of Bromo seltzer and then died. Oh. And he took a little, just a sip. I don't know why, just sort of you're sitting around, everybody's having some Bromo seltzer and it made him very sick, but he didn't die. And there was an investigation and it was discovered that a man named Harry Barnett, who was also a member of the Knickerbocker Club, had died under mysterious circumstances in the week prior. So now... Someone is killing the great Harrys of Europe. Yeah, now it's a big deal. The Bromo Seltzer murders are right up on the front page. And uh, in time, it is revealed that Roland Molyneux... <laughs> Rolo Tomasi. Roland Molyneux... What a great criminal mastermind name. Yeah, Roland Molyneux, who is a pharmacologist or a chemist, mm-hmm. poisoned this because he was mad at Harry for uh, some social slight or for excluding him from the Knickerbocker Club. And he and Harry Barnett had uh, vied for the romantic affections of a similar guy. Ah. And so it was a big, and you know, these are socially, uh, these are people of social rank. So it became a big newspaper story. And eventually, Roland Molyneux was convicted of killing Catherine Adams. But during the course of the trial, the evidence of the death of Harry Barnett was introduced, you know, as... That's a puzzling addition if he's just trying to kill Catherine Adams or... Well, yeah, and Catherine Adams, you know, was just an innocent, as so often is the case. But if he's only targeting Harry Cornish. Uh, Right, if he's only... I mean, it's too much of a coincidence. But unfortunately, he was not charged with the murder of Harry Barnett. And so his lawyers made the case that introducing the evidence of uh, Harry Barnett's death prejudiced the jury because you are given a presumption of innocence. And if he'd been charged with Harry Barnett's death, 
you know, then, then that would have been part of the trial. But introducing that as evidence without him being convicted of that murder prejudiced the jury. And so on appeal, his conviction was vacated. And he got off. He got off. And to this day, if you are doing a, like a pretrial hearing in New York City, that pretrial uh, hearing about what is admissible evidence and what isn't admissible evidence is called a Molyneux hearing. <gasps> wow. Yeah, because of this. The Bromo-Seltzer killer. This incident. The irony is he didn't even have to poison the stuff. I mean, Alka-Seltzer used to have sodium bromide in it, which is called Bromo-Seltzer, which is toxic in large enough quantities. He could have just sent the guy a lot of regular Bromo seltzer. Well, right, but then he would have needed to send him a bunch of Indian food in order <laughs> to eat. <laughs> the perfect crime. <laughs> Look at this, and I'm getting all this free spicy food too. What's the toxic oh. dose of Vindaloo, even if the Vindaloo oh. is not toxic? But... I think you could die from Vindaloo. I've certainly tried. I am not at an age anymore where I can just eat the spiciest Indian food I want. It'll it'll taste great at the time, but I will pay You'll for suffer, it. You'll suffer, I know. In the... We're not going to talk about Night Soil again on this podcast, no, I hope. No, no, no. That's in our distant past. It is striking me that, to me that the idea that you would, because um, there are other stories like this of, uh, of people just killing their romantic rivals around this time in America, like the, uh, the architect, what's that famous case? Stanford White, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if it's just, you know, the death of dueling culture, you know, like the duel is no longer an option. But you, you've been raised in this environment where you have to do terrible murderous harm to your romantic rivals. Sure. But now you have the rational cowardice that comes with modernity of not wanting to shoot at each other point blank. Right. How do you, what do you, if you can no longer slap someone with a kid glove, how do you exact your blood revenge? What's the choice of weapons? Bromo seltzer and It does seem a little cowardly to use bromo seltzer. Well, the, this is the ultimate cowardly crime, you know, right. to walk into a supermarket and to, what is he, what is he doing? Dusting cyanide into a, a thing of Tylenol and reclosing? Is that what we're supposed to imagine he well, does? So, uh, so at the time, a popular style, and now we're back to the Tylenol murders, a popular style of medicine, of medicament, was uh, the caplet, which was two halves of a kind oh. of, you know, gelatin I, capsule. That would, we still have those. Filled with little pellets. Time release. And it would go down smooth, and then it would uh, yeah. have an effect over a long time. So smooth. Uh, and what we have mostly now, those caplets were replaced with caplet-shaped pills. Is that, a res uh, is that a result of the Tylenol yeah. thing? People were suspicious of what's in my caplet? Yeah, and that's the reason that uh, a lot of uh, pills now are in that kind of tubular shape, little mini sausages, because they're mimicking caplets, which in a lot, which in most cases don't exist anymore. Wait, so this is my, this is my naivete. I can't go by contact in little, in little, uh, caplets anymore. Like, I don't, like my dad used to take for his hay fever. I don't think so. I haven't seen one in years. They're all shaped like caplets, but they're, but they're solid pills. So we're to imagine this guy unscrewing a Tylenol caplet, yep. putting something in, in the it. filling, maybe replacing the old acetaminophen and then reclosing it. Reclosing it, putting it back in the bottle. We're looking for a man with small tapered fingers mm -hmm. then. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to point any of my non-guilty fingers in any direction on this podcast. But, but he had to live in Chicago or thereabouts, presumably in 1978. And your whereabouts in, uh, it's pretty confirmed that I was in Alaska at the time. That's a pretty good alibi. Yeah. And it was right after my birthday. In fact, I had just turned 10 years old. And you survived. Good I job. did. I did. We didn't have poison Tylenol there. I mean, you didn't kill yourself after your 10th birthday. I did not. That's right. 
That's right. I live to this day, unless this is a ghost podcast. <laughs> unless this is all happening inside your dream world, Ken. And weird that you would create me of you, all things. You are my Tyler Durden. <laughs> How do we get both of our voices to appear at once sometimes on the podcast? Uh, this could all be in your imagination. This podcast could not exist. Possible. I'm, I'm not even, where am I right now then? I know, where are you? You're hooked up into a matrix pod, just providing fuel through some unexplained chemical process. I was going to say this podcast is getting weirdly solipsistic, but aren't all podcasts weirdly solipsistic? Uh, but there are plenty of examples of product tampering where it isn't this sort of random uh, murder a bunch of strangers. And, and I'm only presuming strangers. It could be that the Tylenol murders actually targeted one of those victims, although it seems like they just bought Tylenol off of the shelf. Very tricky to engineer someone to buy a bottle of Tylenol off the right shelf. Right. I don't, I don't know what I would suggest there if that was my theory of the crime. There are plenty of examples of people who are trying to kill a spouse or other targeted person through a kind of copycat style. They imagine that after the Tylenol murders, that they can just poison some caplets and get away with murder themselves. Uh, but prior to the Tylenol murders, there are other examples of product tampering for various reasons, including for political reasons. In 1978, some kids in the Netherlands were eating some delicious oranges and complained about bitterness in the orange, and their parents checked the orange, and the orange was full of little tiny metal globules. What? And so the family immediately rushed their kids to the emergency room and had the globules tested, and it was mercury, liquid mercury, uh, that had been injected into the oranges. Like with a syringe? Yes. Wow, you can get mercury out of a syringe. You can put mercury into some kind of big fat syringe and inject it so that it dissipates, I think it was multiple injections, into these oranges. That seems so heinous to me somehow because an orange just seems to promise life-giving health, you yeah. know? And yet what lurks inside? Some masterminds mercury. What a terrible crime. Truly heinous. Um, and then as the investigators pursued these oranges, there were mercury-laced oranges that appeared throughout Europe, Germany, Spain, even as far as Mexico. And all these oranges were traced back to Israel, where they were products of a sort of growing Israeli uh, market or an agricultural uh, system within Israel. Like, we're making oranges now. Well, my tip for them would be not to put mercury in them. Well, so eventually, a group called the Arab Revolutionary Army claimed responsibility for poisoning these oranges as a way of trying to destroy the Israeli agricultural, I guess, industry. And so after that, the Israelis took great care to manage the supply chain of their oranges. But that was a, and the Arab Revolutionary Army was one of many small Palestinian groups that kind of existed only long enough to take credit for a single incident of crime. And then they disappeared back into the background noise. Well, it seems like in most cases of this type, the, uh, the likely perpetrator would be some rival company. Right. You know, like in, in most cases, there's not going to be a fringe terrorist group Right. Interested in discrediting your product, unless you're Israeli oranges, right? But there will certainly be business rivals who uh, 
who want people to think your bikes are shoddy or your booze is watery or or whatever it is. Oh, your watery booze. Uh, like, uh, I mean, maybe it was Florida orange growers who actually uh, were, trying to, <laughs> were trying to do a number on the Israeli citrus. Yeah, I mean, you could make an argument that that uh, Palestine and Israel are basically just rival businesses uh, looking for <laughs> market share. Uh, this happened in Japan, actually, kind of in the mid-80s as well. And, and was it that kind of a thing? Well, no, unclear. Uh, there were a couple of uh, instances where products were being poisoned, in, including a kind of soda pop called, uh, what was it called? Like Oronomin C, which is, it's not 100% clear whether that's an Americanization that's a, or, or a typo. Oronomin C. Uh, that it's killed. The, it's the only orange drink with ramen in it, apparently. It's ramen. That's right. A ramen and or on them and see, no, spelled differently. And that actually killed 12 people. And it was the same thing, just off the shelf? Uh, well, so vending machines are very popular in Japan. Ah, as we have discussed. And there was a kind of weird, uh, in the vending machine wars uh, that were happening in Japan in the mid 80s, uh, one of the techniques was that vending machines were programmed to sometimes randomly give you two of the thing you ordered. Mm. So you'd order a pop and two would drop. It's like that thing you do to rats in a maze where you give them kind of intermittent conditioning and yeah. it'll reinforce behavior better than always doing it or never doing it. Right. So people are like, oh, I'm going to drink a and see and maybe I'll get two. And so the suggestion was that the criminals bought a bottle of Aronimin C, poisoned it, and then put it back in the bottom of the machine uh, so that when someone ordered it, it fell, and then they were like, oh, I got two. And it was, one of them was poisoned and prepositioned. And we're supposed to think this is a rival vending machine consortium? Well, no, a group called the Monster with 21 Faces. What? Claimed responsibility then moved on and poisoned another company's products when they weren't able to extort money from the original uh, makers of Veronimum C. It was going to be like, pay us and we'll stop. It was, right. They did not have a political aim. No, although it wasn't, uh, it wasn't 100% clear whether it, uh, the mo monster with 21 faces does sound like a political group. Sure. Particularly sort of in mid- Especially in Japan, yeah. yeah. Like, like what do they have planned for the subway, you mid -80s know? Mid-80s Japan. Uh, the failure to solve the crime- actually drove the police chief to suicide. Wow. Uh, making the death toll actually 13 people. And uh, should which- we, Should we count? Should we count that? Well, I don't the know. The police chief didn't have to commit suicide just because he lives in an honor culture. I feel like the monster with 21 faces bears responsibility. But after the suicide of the police chief, they disappeared. They let, made one last statement and then were gone. And I think they were ashamed. Not that they had killed 12 people, but they were ashamed that the cop- he had yeah. felt shame. Ah, I see. He'd been Pre more honorable than them. Yeah, pretty bad. Um, so there are lots of then uh, subsequent sort of copycat killers throughout the 80s. It was a popular way of attempting to kill your spouse. In 1986, a, man, or a woman named Susan Snow died of Excedrin poisoning here in Washington State. Ah. Then a woman named... Stella Nickel came forward saying that her husband, Bruce, had died just before, and they thought it was from emphysema, but then she checked the bottle because they were saying, oh, this, you know, look at your Excedrin bottles. Mm -hmm. And she realized that he had taken Excedrin of the same 
uh, that was from the same batch. And so there was an investigation and then it was revealed that actually Stella Nickel had poisoned her husband in order to collect the insurance. What about the first crime? And then put a poisoned bottle of Excedrin or two back on the shelves at the drugstore uh, to like obviate the uh, suspicion. And clever to wait, to wait until there's a victim from her, from her planted poison. Well, I think she probably did it immediately and it just took that long for Susan Snow to take the pill. Oh. Uh, but she had thought it through and, and had this, uh, it is pretty clever that she didn't immediately point at the Excedrin and allowed there to be a, a diagnosis of emphysema at first. It's a little tricky because you'd, ha- I mean, I don't know why I'm trying to think like the Excedrin killer here, because it seems like you'd have to find, you'd have to know exactly where and when that bottle was bought and make sure you poison others of an exact similar you know, derivation vintage. Yeah. Uh, Later on, again in Washington state in 1991, uh, as an example of kind of what you're describing, a couple of people died from taking Sudafed, a woman named Kathleen uh, Daniker and uh, Stanley McWhorter. They sound like they should be members of the Knickerbocker Club. Both (laughs) died of cyanide poisoning. And there was a, a, a woman named Jennifer Melling who took this same stuff but didn't die. Uh, was just gravely sickened. And her husband, Joseph Melling, came forward and said, you know, my my wife also took this medicine. And it was revealed later that it was Joseph Melling who had poisoned the Sudafed in an attempt to kill his wife, Jennifer. She didn't die, but two other people did. I kind of think of all of this as collateral damage from our nameless Chicago killer, you know? It is. We don't know if any of these people would have tried to kill their spouses otherwise, but this certainly gave them the idea of some, they thought, airtight way to do it and and take out innocence as well. That's the terrible thing about this is you're, you're willing to sacrifice, uh, you know, a few randos who shop at the same drugstore as you. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, there are always sort of uh, the risk of copycat killings. And every time there is one of these, there's a rash of them. And if you look at the... I'm just mentioning some of the famous ones. If you look at the product tampering literature, I mean, there are numerous cases of it, usually that just make people sick or kill one or two people. And it's an international phenomenon. There's also quite a bit of written material in the underground press in the family of how to kill your boss or how to kill someone you want to die. Um, I mean, today you would, I guess, in our era, you could Google that. We're in a digital age, listeners. But how, you know, how would that have worked? Were there weird mimeographed how to kill your boss things getting passed around? Well, there were, in fact. There's a publishing company called the Paladin Press that is famous over the course of the, from the 1970s forward, famous for publishing all kinds of what you would consider uh, underground or unseemly publications, like how to groom a child from a pedophiliac standpoint. And, what? you know, real pushing the boundaries of free speech. I guess I thought those would all be political, like how to make a pipe bomb. I well, didn't know there were like just how to be a, a, a weirdo suburban sex criminal. Yeah, how to be a creep. And a lot of them are like how to make a pipe bomb. But there was a famous one called Hitman, a technical manual for hitmen that had a bunch of techniques of killing people, including... Because sure, you, can't, you can't go to college for that. You can't major in the professional assassinry. Well, that's right. And, and I think traditionally, kind of like the law, 
you would intern with a uh, with a lawyer or a judge to learn your trade. But if you want to be a hitman and you don't have a convenient elder hitman to follow around, uh, this manual came out sort of in the in the uh, the mid '80s as a way of like walking you through. So it's always annoying when you're getting murdered. And it's a, clearly a new guy who is holding the gun weird and he has to get his manager. Yeah. That's awkward. Yeah. Or you're just like, or he's consulting the manual while he's like garroting you. Yeah. Or he's like, I don't know what to do here. Some of the criticism of Hitman, uh, the book, a technical manual. <laughs> some of the criticism. Some of the, is, some... is it also poorly edited or something? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the publishers uh, were sued by people who were killed and, it, and the killer was I discovered. Could, it, it could be traced back to the book. Yeah, discovered. Uh, and Paladin Press routinely claimed freedom of the press. Um, but then it came out that the book was maybe, I mean, it was published anonymously, but maybe written by uh, a divorced mother of two who just made it up or read a bunch of crime novels and was like, just compiled crime novel techniques. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. This is not really related to that, but I just found out that the the person who wrote all those totally tasteless jokes from, oh, yeah. the, uh, from the 80s, I'm sure you've got a shelf full of I those do, somewhere. I, uh, I think she's now some like um, pretty revered feminist thinker. Oh, really? Yeah. Blanche Knott, you know, the pseudonymous writer of the, all these dead baby jokes and Helen Keller jokes is now some totally beloved social activist who, uh, you know, has been in Harper's and the New Yorker. Well, I won't comment as to whether or not that makes sense to me uh, at, <laughs> at some level. I think it's more of a, you got to pay the bills thing than, <laughs> than, uh, you there's know, some than through line virtue <laughs> signal your people are actually all sickos in private life. Uh, I found a couple of academic papers that quote uh, up to 18 different publications uh, advocating product tampering and poisoning as a way to to take revenge against individuals and corporations. And there's quite a bit of that, uh, people that are disgruntled who just do this to ruin someone's reputation. The tampering cases I'm aware of, like the, the highest profile for me that really affected my childhood are the trick-or-treat ones. Mm-hmm. Just so the future knows this is some kind of former vandalism pagan ritual that has now turned into an instrument of childhood obesity, I guess. Yeah. The needles and razor blades that were inserted right. into fruit. Yeah. Or your, yeah, your apple will have a razor blade. Your Snickers will have cyanide injected into it. Um, you can take your stuff down to the post office. We'll x-ray all your goodies. And this was a real thing. I remember as a kid, because in the seventies, when you went trick or treating, it was really a free for all. Halloween was a, 
nutty time. Your parents basically kicked you out of the house and you went rampaging through the neighborhood yes, getting soaping windows and whatnot. Well, and you know, and people would give you fresh baked cookies and trick or treat was taken slightly more seriously. Like if there's no treat, there's going to be a trick, my friends. If, if you're the dentist who gives out floss, yeah. you're going to get a trick. Sorry, pal. But then there was this moment where, um, where a bunch of kids supposedly got razor blades in their apples. And from that point on, there was, I've never seen fruit offered again. The funny thing is uh, when academics try to trace this back, there is no Ur case. Uh, it was a urban legend before there were any crimes. The razor blades in the apples. Yeah, there were no poisonings or tamperings on Halloween ever in news accounts. It was only once it became a thing, then you started to get the occasional scare thing like, my son got a Reese's peanut butter cup that looks a little weird, you know. Right. It's, it's got this weird white dust on it. Yeah, that's what American chocolate always looks like, ma'am. Hey, now. And there were copycat crimes, in fact. For decades, the only two people who had ever died from poison Halloween candy were people who had heard about this as a way of committing or covering up a crime, didn't know it was fake, and decided to use it as their modus operandi. Really? Yeah, in one case, it was a father in Texas who actually killed his own son for insurance money Aye. and then you know said oh yeah it's one of these famous poison halloween candy cases only to find out that wasn't the his thing. was the first one ever <laughs> yeah oops <laughs> and an another case which is even sadder a detroit family where a kid accidentally got into uh, some uh, ne'er-do-well uncle's heroin stash and od'd and the family tried to cover it up by giving the police some poison halloween candy but other than those two cases it had literally never happened and yet the whole fear of it shaped our childhood well uh this idea of uh, of kind of um, a mass reaction, not just of copycats, but of a kind of hysterical reaction, uh, even sure. though we have we've decided that hysterical is no longer a, a valid word for describing this sort of condition. It's a little misogynistic. I don't. Uh, know. Is there a word for hysteria that does not imply the uterus? That doesn't. That it doesn't have a uterine connection. What's an organism that men and women have down their kidneys? Uh, it's a spleen, it should be called uh, a splenetic reaction <laughs> to uh, to incidents of poisoning. In again, in the mid '80s, not long after the Tylenol poisonings, uh, there was a year where Girl Scout cookies were. Uh, there was a rash of Girl Scout cookies that had pins and needles inserted into them that were creating all kinds of situations where people were poking their lips and tongues and. Um, was this rumor or did it actually, was somebody actually doing this? Well, so in the course of this year of Girl Scout cookies, uh, there were over 800 reported incidents of Girl Scout cookies full of pins, so much so that the Girl Scouts withdrew their cookies and in the following years, you know, was saw, I think this, the next year there weren't even Girl Scout cookies, and then they saw this dramatic decline in the sale of Girl Scout cookies, so much so that they were not able to fund a lot of the Girl Scout projects that are funded by the cookies. Oh, wow. They had to cancel a bunch of programs for little girls because they didn't have the money. And after extensive investigation, it was discovered that of the 800 incidents Mm, the vast majority of them were just false. Uh, they were just 
Splenaria. Yeah, it was splenaria. People were either falsely reporting them or putting needles in Girl Scout cookies on their own in order to create a problem. To get attention, right? To like, get attention. I can be on the local news. And there are lots of other kind of examples of strange... Well, for instance, one, uh, once in recent memory in the late 90s, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, people were getting bacterial infections when they went to the hospital. And after an investigation, it was revealed that there was a nurse in the hospital who was a fentanyl junkie, or a fentanyl, I guess, fentanyl junkie, who was breaking open the little ampules, taking the drugs, and then filling it up with tap water. But the tap water was contaminated <laughs> with uh, bacteria, and then it was creating, like, uh, infections in the victims. If she just used, like, uh, Evian. This also happened in Washington, uh, where a woman, and Washington is famous for this type of thing. It does seem we, like we're coming out disproportionately. We keep getting, we keep, and it's not just that I'm just reading the literature on Washington killers. It's just keeps popping up. But there was a nurse here in a plastic surgery clinic who was taking Demerol and then, you know, replacing the Demerol with fake uh If all that means garbage. is like rich Mercer Island ladies are getting slightly more painful nose jobs. I guess I'm not, I'm not totally yeah, but against think, that one. Think about that. Like, oh, I'm going to get my face cut and pulled back, but I don't feel numbness. <laughs> I feel like I'm dying. The, but the most egregious... I think, example of this, the worst of all. And it's hard to say, like, the worst because... A lot of these have been pretty bad. A lot of them have resulted in uh, people dying. But let me ask you this before you tell us. Like, what, what do you think is worse? The targeted one, the people using this as a method of, uh, of killing a specific one, or just kind of the, uh, the anarchist impulse of, I'm just going to poison the Tylenol and let the chips fall? Well... I feel like if you are trying to kill your husband for the insurance money, uh, that this is a pretty good method, actually. And, and that being said... You're not recommending it. <laughs> no, because, I, because one of the concerns I have is that copycat murders do follow the, uh, the revelation of this kind of thing. And I don't want any of the futurelings who are sitting around trying to eliminate the ectoplasm that uh, lives next door... Uh, I don't want them. I mean, if true crime is at an all-time peak in our era, not just in podcasting, but on television and whatnot, uh, if we're living in the age of true crime, are we going to see a second wave of it? Yeah, I don't want that to be the result of people listening uh, to this show. I take particular exception to killing random people in order to cover up your crime. You think that's the worst? Well, because you're I doing mean, both. I don't know. Poisoning like multiple people for no good reason and never taking credit for the crime and just doing it as a kind of like some people like to watch the world burn thing. Right. Um, that's pretty awful, too. I think it seems more awful to us as potential victims, because for the first thing we can think, well, I'm just a, such a nice guy that none of my friends or family will want to target me for death. So we feel safe. But uh, in the case of a drugstore poisoner our uh, niceness among our circle of friends will do us no good in preventing our own murders. Right. So what is the worst? Well, the worst one, but before we get to the worst one, I want to do the best one, which is very recent. In 2010, it was discovered in the greater Long Island area that people were buying jello pudding and discovering in the jello pudding packages, not jello pudding, but a mixture of sand 
and salt. <laughs> you like this one? This is great uh, because no one dies. Uh, there was, but no one gets delicious jello pudding. Either. No one gets delicious jello pudding. <laughs> it's kind of a wash. But uh, it was uh, in the course of time revealed that a couple, Alexander and Christine Clement, or Clement, uh, if you want to <laughs> say it in my usual way, uh, just really loved jello pudding, and jello pudding was a dollar fifty, <laughs> and they objected to having to pay a dollar fifty for as much jello pudding as they wanted. Socialist. So, I, I, that's the worst block is the jello socialist. Yeah. So they bought a bunch of jello pudding and took the pudding mix out and put sand and salt in and returned the boxes of jello pudding to the grocery store for a full refund. We changed our mind. We decided we didn't want quite this much jello pudding. Yeah. They were discovered because all you had to do was look at the surveillance cameras <laughs> and see who recently bought a whole bunch of Jell-O <laughs> pudding and then brought it back. And they were, you know, they were indicted, but it turned out they weren't trying to hurt anybody. They were just... Just hungry for that delicious, delicious Jell-O. They wanted the pudding, and they were old and oh, maybe see. not entirely in their right minds. I love the idea that the elderly are out there doing pudding-based crimes yeah. right now. Well, and I'm just trying to think, like, 50 containers of Jell-O pudding... Where did they, you know, they emptied it out <laughs> like into a big mixing bowl or something like, and then how do you remember how much is a helping of Jell-O pudding? Like you don't want to get the measurements wrong. I feel like probably very little delicious Jell-O pudding came out of this scheme for the very reasons you outlined. I'm guessing. And I think probably the police confiscated the Jell-O pudding and who knows, probably it's in evidence somewhere on a Long Island police station. Don't you think the best product tampering would be um, somebody putting something good in? Oh. Like Willy Wonka. Like that guy tampered with the five candy bars to put yeah. in his ticket. Yeah, what a good idea. Or like you like you buy the cheap store brand something and somebody has actually put in the nice Trader Joe's one or... Can you imagine? Well, no one would ever discover, right? They'd just be like, meh, this garbage food that I'm eating is slightly less garbage today. <laughs> but the worst of them, and I think it's, you know, like you can debate, uh, if one of your relatives died in the Tylenol scare, you're not going to say that that some other version of this is the worst. Sure. But it is fairly common that people tamper with baby food. Oh. And in a kind of the worst possible way, the tampering with baby food often includes ground glass. Do we know why people do this? Uh, it's awful and it's unclear. It's just the problem of evil. There's no actual reason... Yeah, sometimes it is a case of blackmailing. And this happens not just in America, but the, in Great Britain and in places far afield. Black, how does blackmail work? Well, uh, in the blackmailing case in 1989, uh, glass was put into uh, baby food sold by the Heinz Corporation. And someone tried to extort like, a couple million dollars oh, from, I see, Heinz, from Heinz. Uh, to I, say, I, like, I thought someone was trying to blackmail the parents or, or worse, the babies. Yeah, right. How do you blackmail a baby, right? Like, babies have no secrets. Also, you can't blackmail someone who can't understand the demands. Right. It's crucial. Like, that's when someone tries to blackmail me, I just cover my ears and go, la, 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 la. Neener, neener. Because you can't, you know, if I don't know what they're promising to release about me, I'm not going to pay them. Right. And nobody has any dirt on you, do they? Well, I don't know. Like, if, as long as I cover my ears and go, la, 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 I don't, I don't have to hear the, the dirt either. Right. Right. Um, sometimes it's ricin that they put in. I mean, there are a lot of incidents. Uh, the most famous one 
uh, at least was again in the 1980s, presumably still in the aftermath, the immediate four or five year period after the Tylenol scares, there were a lot, more than a hundred reports of ground glass in Gerber baby food. And there was a, an investigation launched and it was discovered, not that there were 140 cases, but they did discover multiple, you know, tens of containers of Gerber that had ground glass inserted. It wasn't clear. Uh, they, they never discovered the culprit. It wasn't clear what they were after. It was suggested that maybe once the scare got happening, that there were quite a few copycat cases that happened immediately so that it seemed like one perpetrator. Although I would bet that as you investigated it, you could say like, well, this is different kind of ground glass than that. Mm. And one of the reasons that this is well known is not just the, the heinousness of poisoning baby food with glass, but it's an example of how not to handle it from a corporate standpoint. The Gerber company not only refused to recall its products, but it sued the state of Maryland for, uh, for banning Gerber foods. Uh, they went to war with government regulators and in the aftermath did a tremendous, I think, I think within the, at least the corporate advertising world, which ultimately is the moral arbiter of our time. That's where I look. N yeah. Now that religion has apparently been discredited by science. Yeah. What do the advertisers say? Uh, the Gerber incident in dramatic contrast to Johnson and Johnson, I think it's regarded as a, still a classic example of how not to deal with it and whatever it would have cost them to recall the, their product, the damage to their reputation was far greater. How come there's not like any of the sexy kind of tampering, like in movies where somebody's brakes get cut and then they have to drive along a, a windy cliffside road? That's the kind of spy tampering I like. Yeah, it's, it's, or, it's all terribly just humdrum, baby food and Tylenol. Ugh. Yeah, you hardly ever hear of, of somebody like, I put the bullet in backwards in his gun and he shot himself. <laughs> I don't, for one thing, I'm not sure. I'm not confident that's how guns work. Listen, <laughs> don't argue with me. What about like sabotaging a parachute or a hang glider? You know, some kind of murder she wrote product tampering. That's, yeah, you're supposed I guess that's what I want. I you know, I think if you're a professional parachutist, you pack your own, but the time that I went parachuting, my parachute was packed by somebody that worked at the place. Me too, cuz it was just a consumer thing now. I've done this. I didn't know you had done this. Oh yeah. I've done this once as well. And yeah, like they totally could have been trying to kill us. Yeah, they hand you a parachute and you're like, "Hmm, you know, pack your own parachute is kind of a trope." I guess if that place keeps losing first timers because right. the chutes are packed badly, at some point, that's going to catch up with their little operation. Yeah, but they could they could be somebody working there like, that's television's Ken Jennings. He defeated my brother-in-law on Jeopardy. It is a murder she wrote. Today he pays. And that concludes Pylonol Murders. Entry 1354.1S2915, certificate number 27765, in the omnibus. This is completely irrelevant for you who live in a blissfully social media-free age, but John and I were products of our time. Please judge us generously. We were on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter under the handle Omnibus Project, and individually as well. We just couldn't get enough of that sweet, sweet social media. Uh, we were John Roderick and at Ken Jennings, respectively. 
on Twitter. John was also at John Roderick, three syllables, on Instagram. Yep. It's fun over there on Instagram, barely, for a little bit longer. Listeners would often contact us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Which we periodically go and read. Yes. Instead of committing murders, they would just chat with us. Or they would go to the Futurelings uh, fan site on, on Facebook. I should not neglect the Futurelings fan site on Facebook. Another good thing for our listeners to do instead of murdering their spouses or strangers at the supermarket. We cannot emphasize that enough. It may be, though, that in the future, Facebook is rightly regarded as an institution as bad as American slavery. It is us just sort of confessing. Now, John and I, of course, uh, owned slaves, as you know. Yeah. Uh, We were on Facebook and advocating (laughs) that people go there. We were at the slave market in Providence and Boston every week on Tuesday. (laughs) And these people in the future are like, They're just like, every time you mention Facebook, we lose a thousand uh, ectoplasmatic listeners. But we hope from our vantage point that you don't judge us by your future uh, revisionist standards, but judge us only by what we knew in our own time. Uh, And... Although we recognize that our civilization cannot possibly survive. There's no way at this point. With its, it's like... With its bathroom murders and its Facebook bullying. It's completely... I mean, every single institution appears to be corrupt. I can't think of a single one. I was about to say the Boy Scouts, but no, they were, they, they were revealed the as awful homophobes. The Girl Scouts continue to be good. They're pretty um, good, although... You never know what's going to be in those cookies. Should we make a list of approved institutions? Who, what are the good institutions? The, the American Cancer Society? The Lego Company? Oh, they're nice. Still makes high-quality toys. A little overpriced, but well, that's the price of quality. Super overpriced, and I think I don't like all the tie-ins. I mean, they're tying into some very questionable films and other cultural entities. Those disappear quickly. If you don't want the Prince of Persia Lego, good news. They're not going to make any more. Right. And I suppose you can always repurpose those. Uh, I have run out of good institutions. I guess just the NFL and the Catholic Church. The NFL and the Catholic Church. God bless them both. May they always survive. And may we survive. But if we fail, if we die in our own time, uh, we hope that this will not be our last show. We hope Uh, it's not this week, basically. Yeah, we hope that whatever, Facebook doesn't come crush us all. And so we hope to be back with you next week with another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.